From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. Um, so we were challenged both from a cell phone point of view and from an internet point of view with being able to reach everybody. Having said that, because a lot of these patients were in our contracts, we had mechanisms uh, in place where at least we could uh, figure out how to how to communicate with them. Sometimes it was through a daughter that would, you know, would be able to bring them to a place where they could communicate or, or something like that. So it was a much bigger challenge, I'm sure, for us than, than a, say, a city that has full internet and full cell phone service uh, for us to be able to do the, the telehealth visits. That's Dr. Scott Fowler talking about some of the challenges of connecting with his rural patients through telehealth during the pandemic. We'll hear more from Dr. Fowler in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. Ring Central brings staff, patients, and payers together with compliant cloud communications and a modern call center on any device. A free new ebook from Ring Central and MGMA focuses specifically on the payer provider relationship. With all too familiar patient reviews, must see statistics, and a transformative case study, this ebook illustrates how easily cloud communications can bring patients, providers, and payers together. Download your copy at go.ringcentral.com slash MGMA healthcare. Our guest today is Dr. Scott Fowler, President and Chief Executive Officer of Holston Medical Group, an independent physician practice that manages care for more than 200,000 patients in Eastern Tennessee and Virginia. Dr. Fowler is a nationally recognized expert and speaker on the role of physician leaders in creating value in healthcare. Dr. Fowler, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Great. Now, you, you are currently the president and CEO of Holston Medical Group. Give our audience an idea of the size and scope of that practice. Yeah, Holston Medical Group is, a, uh, is a, about 165 providers located in southwest Virginia, northeast Tennessee. Uh, we're a multi-specialty group, about three-quarters primary care, but we have pediatrics, obstetrics, we have uh, the specialties, general surgery, orthopedics, so uh, sort of a sprinkling of all the general things you'd need to provide services in the sort of Appalachian area of Tennessee and Southwest Virginia. We operate diagnostic centers, which we have in the three major tri-cities areas, Johnson City, Bristol, and Kingsport. Uh, Those are full-service diagnostic centers. We have freestanding surgery centers, sleep centers. We have a dialysis center. So sort of a multi-specialty, but also focused on the service lines that we think are the best for the region that we're trying to serve here in, in, uh, in Tennessee and Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to get deeper into rural health and some of the challenges and some of the opportunities you have there. But before we do that, I, I have to ask you something here. I was reading your biography and... Um, I see that you have both your JD and your MD. 
So I have to ask you, what was going on in your mind? What was, did you have one path you were going first and decided to go into the other one? Uh, how did yeah. that come about? Yeah, it sounds like a little bit of insanity, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> uh, no, I was, I think you have to go back kind of to the beginning to understand the rationale behind all of that. In, in undergraduate school, I was, I was interested in science and I did take quite a bit, but, but really my focus was, uh, was philosophy. And I, I had considered at various times, you know, actually doing that as my profession. So I came out of college, you know, a little wide eyed about all the big questions in the world and not a lot of just particular direction, except for that. I knew that I, I liked the idea of discussion and I liked the idea of science too. My undergraduate degree actually focused sort of on the philosophy of science. So it's a long way of rationalizing the next decision that I made, which really was pretty much all together at the same time to combine the two fields and try to get it done early in my life when I was young and had a lot of energy uh, with the idea in mind that there would be a, you know, an end game and the end game could have been you know, being a professor of philosophy somewhere with a, with a background in law and medicine. But I really wanted the practical pieces of it. Also, at the time, there was a push amongst law firms to try to get JDMDs. Uh, and it, it didn't go on for a long time, but it was the middle of the medical malpractice crisis, really, when I came out. And so there were firms that were very interested in, uh, in having uh, those types of training in inside their law firm. A lot of times what would happen is you'd have somebody practice medicine for 30 years and then they would go back to law school. And of course, at that point, they're not experienced lawyers. And so combining them or getting them into a pretty high powered law firm, which is what these firms were, uh, didn't make sense to the law firm. So they were looking for young, young people that had both degrees. So that's kind of where I started. I, I did go to law school first, but I, I went immediately, really before I even passed the bar, I was already in medical school. I passed the bar in my first year of medical school. So, um, so that's what I did. And the, the idea was there would be a place for me. I thought it was going to be in law. And I did practice law exclusively separately from medicine for a period of time. But what I realized as I got further and further into it is that there really isn't uh, a way to really separate the practice of medicine and the practice of law. Unless you view medicine as just labor mm -hmm. that shows up and does a job, medicine has always been independent. It's always had its own practices. It's always been on the, under the autonomy of a, of a physician. Now that, that changed over the last 20 years, but that's historically where the profession itself sort of came from. A, self-policing uh, model. Turns out law is pretty much the same way in the way it thinks about itself. And so those two uh, fields actually blended quite nicely. And when I got out in practice, I realized that a lot of what we do for our patients, that sort of oath we take to, to drive and be advocates for our patients, similar to the advocacy that a lawyer feels towards his clients, and requires a, a certain amount of autonomy and understanding of how, how you do that inside of a, a, a system that's very large and has you know, a lot of uh, both profit centers and cost centers in it. So uh, the long story short is there was a, a, a certain amount of insanity, but I think that insanity, from my perspective, proved 
that there is a role for a JDMD. I think mm -hmm. there's a big role actually for JDMD type training in moving forward in the business sort of business of how you practice medicine. Mm -hmm. it, I know that we're we're still have some restrictions and we're still ad adherent to uh, COVID-19 right now, but if you were at a dinner party, would you introduce yourself as a doctor lawyer or a lawyer doctor or how, how has that come up in the past when you are having conversations with people? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It really depends on the audience <laughs> right. and it really does. And it depends on what they're interested in because, uh, you know, you always bump into the people that ask you more questions about yourself than, than, than you ask them about themselves, so to speak. But but if I just step quiet and I listen to what people say, they do get around to asking those types of questions, and it does depend on the uh, on the uh, on the audience. I think there is a a new sort of interest in how the regulations mm -hmm. of healthcare and the sort of oath taking the doctor do you do the right thing, not just the doctor but providers in general you know, put the patient above your financial interests, put the mm -hmm. patients above maybe even your personal interests. You know, I was taught uh, both in law school and in medical school that part of being a professional is to recognize that you sacrifice your own self-interest sometimes on behalf of the bigger interest, the, the interest that's bigger than yourself. So anyway, it's a long way, again, another long way of saying um, I introduce myself proudly as a lawyer and a doctor in front of doctors or lawyers, if it's appropriate in their interest. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. That is an interesting yeah. journey that you've had. So I want to turn to the, to the present. Um, we, we know we've all been challenged by COVID-19. We've been challenged by restrictions on telehealth up until this time. Now those have been loosened. Um, what has that been like for uh, your practice? Yeah, so, you know, the, the, re, the re, relaxation of certain types of behaviors from the historical fee-for-service model, which is, you know, a fairly rigid model. It's around volume, and it's mostly, it depends on charting uh, to prove that you get code, you know, you get level one, level two, level three. I think that overriding sort of historical fee-for-service model has kept us from doing some things that are would be better for the patient uh, just because it doesn't fit that model and it takes time to change uh, from those models. The new fee-for-value model that's out there does say, listen, if you can get a better result at a lower price by having something, say, like telemedicine, then we, we want to promote that. And the problem has always been how to get it paid for. So the COVID obviously pushed us quickly to an environment where we couldn't do face-to-face. -face. What happened in HMG, because we were already lean into, I think we can, I can safely say that HMG leans into the idea that value, moving towards value adds a tremendous advantage for patients, especially our most complex patients, but also for physicians, because it changes the way we, we interact. So we were able to move very quickly to online resources for video and, and audio. And we did that even before we were sure whether they were gonna pay for it because obviously the, we couldn't see, we didn't feel it was safe to see patients in our office mm -hmm. in the very beginning of this and we didn't understand it. So that left us with that. 
the payment models changed quickly to support that, as you know, uh, which was wonderful. And still to this day, the payment models, at least for the, the duration of this year, appear uh, that they're going to continue to support that. So uh, we found it very useful. I think we, we went from zero telehealth visits to about maybe 800 to 1,000 telehealth visits within a matter of three or four days, literally mm -hmm. just changing those patients over. Uh, over the time that COVID's been in, we've moved back. We obviously can't do telehealth visits forever on some of these uh, sicker patients. They do need to come in. So we've had to adopt other me mechanisms, but we still use telehealth. I think we still do 100 to 200 telehealth visits in our group, so, yep. Over what time period for that 100 or 200 telehealth visits? Yeah, that's, uh, we do that a day. A day? Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. So take us inside of HMG. This is an interesting contrast because we've had the opportunity on this podcast to interview a hospitalist who was in New York City at the height of everything that was going on, very densely populated. We saw the spread there. We've, you know, through um, national media and through getting to hear this doctor talk about the experiences, we've, we've seen this play out and, and heard those stories. But from the rural setting, paint that picture for us. It's your practice. What was that like in those early days and the kind of education you had to bring to the patients and, and to your staff, to, as you said, to move to telehealth, telehealth over two or three days what that was like to now today to further educating, reintegrating the patients into that in-person office setting. What's that been like for you guys? Yeah, it was, um, it, it was very interesting. And, um, you know, it was a big, uh, it was a big bite to try to take quickly to try to determine what level of education how do we interact with our patients that we're mostly used to seeing face-to-face? -face? What we did was we leaned back into our care coordination part of our company, which has grown up over time, mostly, again, in, re in response to these value-based contracts that we have. We have, some, we have quite a few value-based contracts that we're at full risk for, um, that we've learned sort of how to manage those patients appropriately, and we do have uh, abilities within Holston Medical Group because of that to, to have care coordination. So the first thing we did to try to take a bite at, at this pretty big uh, big meal to eat was to go back and say, let's look at our most vulnerable patients. As you, as you remember, we knew early on that there were certain people that were much more vulnerable than the others. Um, and we didn't get that initial hot spot here. Luckily, in, in sort of Appalachian area where we are, uh, we didn't have the hospital just fill up overnight like they did in some of the places. <clears throat> so we had a minute to try to say, um, you know, what can we do to prevent that from, from happening here? And one of the things that we did was we, we stratified our patients, and we were able to do this again through you know, sort of our technology built around value where stratifying patients into risk categories is critical uh, for value-based uh, care plans for patients. So we immediately went out and said, look, we know the most vulnerable patients are patients who have uh, either uh, 
by their age. So we did use age, but in addition to age, we used two or more chronic diseases that were listed on uh, CMS's chronic disease uh, list for, for most likely to cause inpatient admissions. So we, we use that as a complexity guide because we could see in some of the early reported COVID data that those were the patients that were most likely to end up being in the ICU or, or having a, a, a mortality related to COVID. <clears throat> so we reached out directly to them, uh, whether it's by phone or, or whatever, and we said, look, this is, this is happening. We want to change the way. You're used to us talking to you anyway, because a lot of these patients were patients that were already in our system. Um, we're going to kind of change the way we're interacting with you. We want, you know, to protect you because you are high risk. People need to hear that. You know, you are high risk. You are low risk. You are high risk. Those are, are equally important educational statements, uh, we thought, at least at the beginning, for mm -hmm. sure. And we, we, we may need to see you in our offices. You know, you may, we may need to interact with you face to face. This is sort of how we're going to do it, and this is the line of communication, and this is who you call. And at the, at the same time, we got, at least to the degree we understood the disease, we got to tell them a little bit about what, what we thought the science behind the disease was. So um, it was overwhelming, and we had our spikes here. We definitely filled up our hospital. We have a hospitalist team that's part of HMG, and they certainly uh, had the front line. Um, we built uh, what we called rescue packs so that we could keep people a little longer out of the emergency rooms. If they did develop the disease, we could, we could send them home, we could monitor them. We, we had pulse oxes in those packages. Um, obviously, if they were people that were likely to exacerbate quickly, we still had to bring them into the hospital, but we tried to create those types of environments. And we definitely did that within our own group. So our the educated part of our group from a medical point of view that we thought we could we could uh, manage better outpatient than inpatient. For instance, let's say we have a doctor that actually contracts COVID. Uh, you know, we would send one of those rescue kits. We would monitor them daily. But, you know, unless they exacerbated, they would ride that disease out at home, um, you know, to the extent we could. So I could go on longer about, about this question. I think it's... Uh, I think it's a, you know, a question about how flexible you can be when you're confronted with a significant health crisis where you really have to focus your resources. Um, I, can, I feel like we did a really good job of that, but mostly because we were already in an environment that had prepped us in a sense to be flexible, and that's the value-based, you know, the, this move to value-based care. So without making any comments about how, what anybody else did, I think that certainly helped us. Yeah, one more question then about the rural aspect of it, because you did move so rapidly to telehealth, one uh, aspect of that that I've heard in the rural settings is the lack of broadband being set up. So were you in place with your patient population where they could communicate to you, you could communicate to them, or what needed to be done there? So yeah, we did have, we were challenged. We are very rural. So we were, and we're, and we're mountainous. Um, so we were challenged both from a cell phone point of view and from a internet point of view with being able to reach everybody. Having said that, because a lot of these patients were in our contracts, we had mechanisms uh, in place where at least we could uh, 
figure out how to how to communicate with them. And sometimes it was through a daughter that would, you know, would be able to bring them to a place where they could communicate or or something like that. So mm-hmm. it was a much bigger challenge, I'm sure, for us than than a, say a city that has full internet and full cell phone service uh, for us to be able to do the the telehealth visits. So in addition to that, we did have to rely on very quickly moving, you know, to a two hall, you know, we moved to separating the sick from the well, uh, at least potential COVID patients from non-COVID patients uh, in our offices as well quickly and, and tried to address some of those issues there as well. I will say that because of the stratification, you know, you're stratifying a group of patients that's small compared to the population. So even though you may have a significant problem across 100% of your population, the problem when you get down to the 5 or 10% that are most likely to die uh, from this disease or from any other thing that you're trying to prevent, uh, it becomes much more a much more doable on a one-person-at-a-time one problem. So um, we couldn't do telehealth on somebody that, that we couldn't have a phone call with, but we could, those numbers were small enough in our stratification that we could then come up with an alternative plan for how to deal with them. Okay. Now, one of the things that we're all dealing with right now is the vaccines rolling out. We we're getting new news every single day. Um, Just this morning, we heard about Johnson and Johnson um, having some issues with blood clotting and uh, some other health-related issues that's currently, uh, as of today, put them on the sidelines right now. Um, I bring this up because in an earlier correspondence, you mentioned that Holston Medical Group has a history of clinical research and that your clinic and practice had a role in the Pfizer clinical trials. Tell us about that. What, how did that play out? What was that like for y'all? Yeah, so the we do have a long history, and it sort of comes from the same idea. You know, we're Appalachian, Virginia, and Tennessee, and the idea is to really provide high-quality service to an area that economically has not always been, you know, it still continues to struggle um, from a health status point of view, social determinant health point of view. We have uh, pretty significant issues here. So uh, we've tried to really press on bringing all the things that we think will really advance and move move forward with the capabilities to take care of people here. And one of those is to be competent around bringing research programs into our community, keeping our doctors, you know, fully engaged around the idea of new new things that are available, new technology. So uh, we have a good research department. Dr. David Morin, who runs that department, is is really nationally known for the things he does. So when the when the opportunity to be involved in in some of these vaccine trials, especially under the pressure to get these trials done well, we certainly wanted our population represented in those trials. So um, we did participate in the Pfizer. I think that's been uh, released and is known. The data from that study is is out there. It's uh, it's available. Uh, all the data that I would be able to give you is published at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're familiar, of course, with the Pfizer vaccine and 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 uh, and what its uh, what its rate of of efficacy is, which is very good. So we were very happy to be involved in that. We weren't involved in other 
uh, programs. I think I can say that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, although we were open to be involved in those other programs, but Pfizer was the only one we worked with. Uh, we're very confident. I think you can look at those studies, but I'd just back up and maybe give you more of a personal statement. Uh, you know, we're pretty confident in the science and the safety of those vaccines based, based just on understanding what they are, uh, separate from the results that have been published, which also show that. Um, I'm less familiar with the, obviously, with the other, the other technologies that develop vaccines. So, um, but we, I think in our area, there's always, well, in, in all areas, there's always people who have nervousness around any new technology that, that might affect their health. Mm -hmm. And educating those patients is 100%, in my opinion, it's, it's about the relationship and how maybe intimate's not exactly the right word, it's professional, but the ability of a, a trusted advisor to talk to a patient who may have legitimate and serious concerns about whether they're somebody who ought to take a vaccine, you know, what are the risks of them developing the disease? What are the risks of them giving it to maybe to their, their mom or dad? Uh, you know, all of those things, those kinds of educational things, you know, you can put it on television, you can have people wear masks and, and, and be role models. But in the end, a lot of those things come right down to a trusted provider, uh, you know, whoever that may be, but the person that they're looking to, uh, to bring them both, you know, a model that puts them first, that they feel puts them first, and also is, is educated and has experience around these types of issues. I think that's how you get a higher uh, number of people making, you know, decisions like, for instance, this Johnson & Johnson decision. I don't know the details. I think it just came out this morning, of course, right. in Europe. It had similar uh, starts and stops around certain kinds of issues like this. So, um, but the way to get that resolved, obviously, the, if they stop distributing it, that, that takes care of the issue from the point of view of making sure that we're not distributing something that's unsafe. Uh, but the risks and benefit analysis is still there. It's still there for the patient, uh, especially the ones that already had it. So, mm -hmm. You touched on a lot of good points there, and I want to revisit a couple of those. You talked about that trusted advisor type relationship. Um, MGMA is part of a advocacy campaign, hashtag let docs give shots, because uh, you, I want to hear what y'all's situation has been, but many of the physicians across the country have not had access to the vaccine to distribute to their patients. You you're talking about that trust relationship that so many patients have with their physician. Um, and so it, it's an extra step for them or an extra level of gaining trust to go to a pharmacy or drive to a large stadium or parking lot or somewhere else where they can get a shot. What can we do then to better, uh, you know, build on that trust relationship that uh, patients and providers have with one another? Yeah, no, I, I can't emphasize how much I agree with the MGMA's press for this because I, you know, I get it in the beginning of this where we just needed to get vaccines, you know, out there and get them into as many arms as would accept them. Uh, 
that you know that's about that's a distribution model. It's about how fast can you get that vaccine somewhere. Um, but for the for for the piece of the equation that requires patients understand the risks and benefits, and the ones that have the most concerns actually get their questions answered, which is a large part of our population. And if we're going to achieve, you know, really good rollouts of these vaccines, um, and you know, vaccine vaccines have been have been just a wonderful addition. I mean, I, vaccines have, in a sense, they've saved just, you know, entire uh, populations from, you know, the devastation of, say, the smallpox and things in the past. So vaccines are a critical part, and our ability to explain them to people is essential if we're going to expect to be able to control these pandemic-type uh, problems in the future. So we did not get the vaccine in the beginning. The vaccines were rolled out in Tennessee. They were rolled out through hospitals. In Virginia, they were rolled out through health departments. They were rolled out by political entities to mm -hmm. places where they, I guess, could expose as many people who wanted to come in and weren't going to ask too many questions. They just they were ready to, based on the idea that it was approved, uh, get the vaccine. So we did stand in the background, you know, requesting but not necessarily uh, having access to the supply early on. We did eventually get the supply. And I think as we move now past the patients that are ready to just sort of accept it and we get to the patients that have significant questions uh, about whether they ought to get the vaccine or not, I think that's where this trusted relationship is going to have the biggest effect. I would have loved to have seen it come to doctors in the beginning, I think we have infrastructure, especially in the larger groups, to manage this. But but I do understand that there's a balance between, uh, you know, the going with that trusted provider, which is education and relationship centric, uh, to the big sort of mass distribution models of of um, you know big public pharmacies, for instance. So I hope that answers your question. It does. So yeah. I want to look at another question here, another aspect. So you're dealing with rural health. What is the biggest lesson you've learned? You've touched on many already uh, as far as trust, communication, education. But when you think back now, really going on a year plus of dealing with the pandemic, what have you learned about rural health and how to help provide better outcomes to your patients in having live through this yeah you know there's so many things that we could do better uh, there's so many things that are built into the model of fee-for-service um, you know there's this concept of constantly shifting from uh, more general medicine to more specialized medicine i think it's built into the fee-for-service model it's built into our psyche you know uh, if you if something's wrong with your heart you need a cardiologist well not really. Um, probably only 20% of patients need direct cardiology inter, inter, uh, you know, uh, intervention from a, from a cardiologist. 80% uh, of patients with heart disease are managed by their primary care doctors, and, the, and in 80% of cases, they can, they can do well under the overriding sort of idea that we have this specialization that can drive high-quality protocols and models of care uh, down. So, Rural health, I think, has to be local. That's one thing I've learned is that it's very difficult to use the model of, it's kind of a, I describe it as hub and spoke, but that's not, 
that's not the perfect way to describe it, but it's basically moving patients to a, a place rather than taking care of them where they are. And there is a argument always, and there's a need where uh, somebody with a heart attack needs to be moved by helicopter from one place to, to the place where they can get the treatment that they need. But I think rural health is gonna depend on us making local care available for the 80% of the care that really doesn't require that they move into those more hub and spoke models or they get shifted to the super high specialty places, which tend to be very expensive and very, uh, the access from to those places is very limited for somebody who's in rural health. They may visit one time, but they're not gonna get taken care of on a continuous basis. They're gonna get, they're gonna go back home and when they have problems again, they're gonna probably be too late before they get back to the main center again. So the lesson for me is, is, is that, you know, we have to provide all the services we can provide. We need to figure out how to do that because it, it requires a different model of, of reimbursement. Uh, the model of reimbursement that says fee for volume, higher pay for more specialized care, uh, in bigger facilities that have more leverage, that model uh, is, you know, sapping. It's sapping medical resources from our rural areas. So we do need a new reimbursement model. I think the value model has good uh, propensity to, to begin to fill that gap. Uh, COVID taught me absolutely positively that the model, the model that we have that moves everybody around like that, that's incentivized by this sort of volume and specialization model doesn't necessarily respond well uh, to, uh, you know, an emergency. And it really leaves the rural, in, it leaves the rural environment to be protected and cared for uh, mostly by those relationships, those trusted relationships that get up in the middle of the night and, and do what's necessary, so. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for that. And I, I wanna switch gears for a final question here. You really piqued my interest when you said, even before your medical career, even before your legal career, uh, your first love was philosophy. So I, I can't leave that unquestioned un, uh, here. So what, is, what was your biggest influence, if a, a philosopher or a philosophical tree um, that you really connected with and have been able to uh, use in your, both your legal and medical career? You know, philosophy is the study of, in a lot of ways, I mean, it's got a lot of different parts to it, but one of them is just how do we know things and where do, where do ideas come from and how do we, and is there a way to analyze them to say that there's a better, a better way to think about something or maybe even a way you have to think about something. So, you know, the person, the individual, uh, and the focus on how the individual actually comes to understand and know things, you know, acquire knowledge. And is there a separation between the knowledge, you know, that you sort of are born with and the knowledge that you acquire in your life? And, and what does that mean in terms of the dignity of the person? Um, I think when I got to law school and I realized the code of professional conduct in law school and what it meant, you know, what it basically meant to be a lawyer, uh, in terms of the duties that you owe outside yourself. Um, and then you know, I saw the same thing in medicine. I think those are just direct, they're direct descendants of philosophical thought. 
And, uh, you know, if you want to talk about law, you talk about somebody maybe like John Rawls uh, out of Harvard talking about sort of the way to think about individuals and the way they fit in. Um, that Those thoughts, which I think are Kantian originally, uh, and probably that's where they derive from, I think he even says that, uh, those apply over uh, to medicine. If you talk about, you know, how knowledge progresses, the structure of scientific revolutions, um, a lot of those ideas, these are things I studied in college and they're not new. I mean, they've been around for a long time. If you look at the, you know, the history of the development of governments, all of those things do. I mean, they're what we're talking about today. I mean, they're what the real arguments are about. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I honestly, I'm not sure I could do my, my job without having some of that foundation because otherwise there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of lack of direction. You know, I can stand in front of my group and very confidently from my own perspective say, without question, if we want to be successful, we will run to the, the light. And that light is how do, we, how do we, you know, give our patients the best possible care? How do we give them the dignity that they deserve as a human being, no matter who they are, no matter what they believe or what they think? Those are things that that are foundational, uh, and I, 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 almost everybody I meet that's a doctor already knows these things. They may not be able to put them in philosophical terms, but they picked it up. And I would say, to to a certain degree, um, that that's ubiquitous to all professions, certainly law and medicine. So um, we could spend the and look, I'd love to do it too, Daniel, if you if you got the time. We could spend the next four months probably talking about how I think all these things interact because I, I do think that we don't do enough of it. I mean, there really are crossovers between philosophy, medicine, and law that really clarify, at least for discussion purposes, for having a legitimate discussion amongst people. And a lot of what you see right now is, is discussion where people actually are just coming from completely different viewpoints. And so it's, it's difficult for them to connect and have a have a real discussion, so. Mm-hmm. Dr. Fowler, as you said, we could, we could talk about this for days and, and uh, never even scratch the surface. So it has been such a pleasure to get to talk with you today. So thanks so much for sharing these thoughts and insights with us. Well, I've, I've enjoyed it very much too. And I really do appreciate you including me in your podcast and uh, hopefully it'll be meaningful to, to people. I hope so. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Scott Fowler. You can hear additional thought leadership speakers at MGMA's upcoming Medical Practice Excellence Pathways Conference, May 11th through the 13th. For more information or to register, go to mgma.com slash pathwaysconference. And thanks to Ring Central for sponsoring this week's show. Ring Central and MGMA are offering a free new ebook on the payer provider relationship. Download your copy at go.ringcentral.com/mgma-healthcare. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com. 
or you can find me on Twitter at MGMA Daniel. MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership. Thanks.